0: Let's continue in our sermon series on Life Lessons from Corinth. Today we're gonna be looking at an important topic that's often discussed uh, within the believing communities and that's giving to those who are needy, giving to those in need. Now it's important because the general attitude of of believers and our understanding is that it's our duty as followers of the Lord to alleviate poverty to the best of our ability. So much so that we teach that we are to do so indiscriminately in other words, we're to take care of people, regardless of all walks of life and all situations. So let's pretend you were part of the High River Flood a few years ago, or the Fort McMurray fires that happened. It's the Christian responsibility to come in and alleviate all the problems. Or if, you're a, if there's a person begging you in the street for money, that's the Christian responsibility to show compassion to that person and anyone who comes across our path. To quote Randy Alcorn, Uh, who wrote a book called Managing God's Money, he wrote this, quote, Caring for the poor and helpless is so basic to the Christian faith that those who don't aren't considered true heaven-bound believers. He even goes to support this by quoting Matthew 25 in the New Testament. It's Jesus' words, and remember, it's it's the parable, it's it's him describing the end-time judgments. And people come to him for judgment. He says, some of you can enter into heaven, and some of you can't. And some of you can be in my presence, some of you can't. And basically, he says, those who can are those who are praised by him for feeding him when he was hungry, giving him a drink when he was thirsty, uh, giving him clothing when he was naked, help when he was sick, caring for him. And those who were failing to do so were accused of, of not doing these to him and therefore couldn't enter glory. And so both the the righteous and unrighteous then ask the question, well, when did we see you sick or hungry or naked and so on? And listen to what Jesus says. If I could find (laughs) it, He says, the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. So the, the common thought by Randy Alcorn and other people out there is, because, brothers and sisters, there's a reference here to uh, humankind, uh, the, the, the mankind, so to speak. Therefore, um, to take care of anybody and anyone's issues is to love the Lord. So how we are compassionate to everyone indiscriminately is a matter of, uh, uh, of an eternal nature. Now, it sounds convincing. It pulls in the heartstrings. But is this the biblical mandate? Before we begin to answer that question, let me give you a couple points of way of introduction. When you put verse 1 and verse 3 together in this passage here in Corinthians, it's clear there's an apparent financial need. And there's a crisis within the church in Jerusalem. There's a need, there's a financial need for people who are struggling in Jerusalem. Now, while the depth of the need is not stated here, in Romans 15, 26, He appeals to this, Paul again appeals to the same issue that's going on, and he says this, some of the saints are poor, are poor. So Paul then wants the Corinthians then to participate in bringing relief, like the Galatian churches before them, to bring relief to the Christians, or sorry, to the poor in Jerusalem. Now the catalyst for such an event, we don't know for sure. One contributing factor could be the widow's crisis that was an ever-present reality since the the birth of the church. Remember in Acts 6, there was a widow's crisis because the Hellenistic Jews were uh, were not getting fed compared to the the, um, the, uh, Native Jews. And so um, there's a a food shortage. And so they have to to, uh, come around everyone and basically get them taken care of. This could be a contributing factor as a church grows. More and more widows come in. They can't take care of themselves. Likely, though, um, while that may be a contributing factor, probably what's more going on is the result of the famine that occurred earlier. And I want to show you about the famine here in Acts eleven twenty-seven through 30. This is a uh, uh, prophet Agabus um, is, is mentioned here. So it says, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Clodius. So again, maybe the widow's crisis is contributing, perhaps it's the famine, and now it's left people impoverished in uh, Jerusalem. Regardless of the cause, regardless of the cause and what's contributing the most, we know there's a deep need. There are poor people in Jerusalem. But there's one other cool point I want to mention here by way of introduction. And that's the significance of Paul mobilizing the churches in the Gentile world to alleviate what's going on in the Jewish world in Jerusalem. You see, what Paul was doing was upholding a commitment he made to the key Jewish leadership years earlier in Jerusalem. I'll give you the context, it happens in Galatians 2, but Paul's apostleship's under attack. He's been accused of being a false apostle. And so he's appealing in Galatians to his audience saying, I'm legit. I'm legit. And he says, I'm in, I'm in harmony with, the, with the, the key leaders of Jerusalem, like uh, James and Peter and, and John. Like these guys, I'm in, I'm in key uh, harmony with these guys. But I'm also not only doctrinally, but personally. And so he makes this defense here in Galatians 2 through 8. He says, in fact, James, Peter, and John, who are known as close to the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they were accepted, Barnabas and me, as our co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I always have been eager to do. So when Paul mobilizes the Corinthian church here and the Galatian churches, he's upholding a promise he made to the pillars of Jerusalem back then. Now, my... My personal belief, and I, I have commentaries that sort of supported my thoughts, was the poor he's referring to are those only in Jerusalem. Because it's the Jewish people, the Jewish apostles and stuff and the leader of the church appealing to him saying, Paul, remember us. It's not totally clear, but the way that's written, though, no, he could be just referring to the poor throughout the Gentile world as well. But regardless, he, by collecting this offering for the churches back in Jerusalem, He's honoring his commitment he made to the apostles back in Jerusalem years earlier. But the key here, which I think is really important, it's not just about the gift for Paul, but but what the gift would accomplish. Again, Gentile churches going to Jewish people to bring money to say, we're with you. You know the ethnic tensions that exist between them. How it took so much for the Gentiles to be included in by the Jewish people in terms of salvation. Community is always an issue in the New Testament church, how they would get along as two ethnic groups. And so, what an incredible act of unity, an incredible act of mercy and love for Gentiles to bring an offering to Jews and say, We are brothers and sisters in Christ. What a tremendous statement of unity. So let's dive in then, verse 1. Let's read it together. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I direct the churches of Galatia, so do you also. The first thing I want you to notice here is who is the offering directed towards? Who is the, rector- who is the uh, collection for? The saints in Jerusalem. Followers of Christ. This is not indiscriminate giving to anybody who's a widow, to anybody who's experiencing a famine in Jerusalem. You think only the saints in Jerusalem are the only ones experiencing these, these hardships and everyone else is doing well? Not a chance. But yet, Paul says, give to the saints. It's discriminate giving. He is highlighting who the offerings are to be given to. This is really important because this is actually not only the only place this, has been, this is actually stated. This is the pervasive teaching throughout the New Testament. The pervasive teaching to the New Testament. In our men's study in Acts chapter 4 last week, we learned this. That all the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had and there was no needy people among them. What was the connection? All the believers were united. There was not a needy person among them. This is the practice of the early church. Consider Acts 11. I read you the first part. I didn't read you the second part. After Agabus predicted the future famine, throughout the whole Roman world, look what he says. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. But, but, but Paul, there's an Agabus, there's a famine in the whole world. I know. He went to the brothers and sisters in Judea. And they did so, sending their gift as by the elders of Barnabas and Saul. And Saul being Paul, who's writing First Corinthians. This is really important to notice these words, brothers and sisters here. Let's go back to Randy Alcorn's. Comment in Matthew 25. Matthew 25. I'll read from the beginning. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and gave you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I'll tell you the truth, and he did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. He did it to me. That same word for brothers and sisters in Greek is used in Matthew twelve forty six. Matthew twelve forty six. Jesus is teaching at a house. His mom and brothers, biological mom and brothers, show up. The crowds come and say, "Jesus, your brothers and mom are standing outside. They want to speak with you." And Jesus says, "Who is my mother and who is my brother?" Stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he says this, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. (laughs) Matthew 25, what's the issue Jesus is dealing with? People who say they love the Lord and they've neglected their own people. Not the world, their own people. James 2, 15 and 16, read it. I won't tell you what it says, just read it. Now, does this mean we're never to give outside the church community? No. It doesn't mean that. First Timothy six, seventeen and eighteen. Instruct those who are rich in this world to be generous. He doesn't say just generous to Christian people, he says to all people. And Galatians six ten is a really important verse, church. Galatians six ten. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. So again, do good to everyone, but again, watch the priority system, especially those who are in the same household, the same community, the spiritual brothers and sisters. So again, we're not saying we can't be generous to those outside the church community, but our priority pervasively to giving to those in need is unanimously in terms of like the the, the priority system is unanimously in the category of helping our own, our own spiritual family, the spiritual family of God. But you know what? There are times that we're not even to take care of our own. (laughs) Did you know that? There are times we're not even to take care of our own. The Lord has something to say to people who have the ability to work, but they choose not to due to laziness. They have the ability to work, and they're Christian brothers and sisters, and they choose not to because of laziness. Consider 2 Thessalonians 3:10 to 15 For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. So if we have brothers in our midst, spiritual people who are in our midst, who have the ability to work and they will not do so and provide, we're not to support them financially they may be in need but that's because of laziness and we're not to give them a dime not only give them a dime we're to disassociate from them in the community and when they ask why won't you hang out with me anymore you say because you're lazy and the lord doesn't want you to live like that don't you remember adam was working before even sin entered the world to be created in the image of god is to work he worked for six days and rested on the seventh. You work for six days and take a, pay, take a break. It's a pattern. Now, why these Thessalonians were resting or being idle is another conversation. But regardless, there are people in the, in the midst that were. And what does Proverbs 6, 10 say? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a thief and scarcely like an armed man. Let's think about uh, Jesus' little ministry and what he said. And just as importantly, what he did. There's a key text you have to turn with me to in Luke 7. Turn there with me in Luke 7.22. Luke 7.22. The context is John... The Baptist is in, is in jail, and he's gonna—you know—he's been persecuted for standing up to uh, the king. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, "Are you the expected one, or are we to expect someone else?" And so Jesus sends them back, the disciples of John, back to tell John a message. And this is the message that John's disciples are to bring John in prison from Christ. Verse twenty-two. He summoned them, and said, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Do you know what's absolutely fascinating about that passage? Let's play a game. What's the opposite of black? What's the opposite of uh, Happy. Good, you guys catch on. Okay, what's the opposite of uh, blind? And that's what Jesus gives them. What's the opposite of lame? Walking, and he gives them walking. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf can hear. What's the opposite of poor? Why does it not say rich? The gospel shall be preached to the poor. makes <laughs> sense. Oh Yeah, it can make them rich, right? <laughs> In a different way, yeah. But here's what's really cool about this. This is so important, right? Because he's saying, this is an expectation that you wouldn't think you'd hear. You'd think they should become wealthy. And he says, no, the gospel to be preached. Now, it's true that some are needy due to unforeseen circumstances. That's true. Like widows who have husbands pass away, and so on, like that. Things like that. Or if you are born lame what, and whatnot. But many is due to sin. Much poverty is related to sin. A lot of it is related to sin. Poor people, if they have the gospel preached to them, and, and they receive the message of Jesus Christ, and he changes their heart, they are going to now honor him with the way they handle money and with the way they approach work. To receive Jesus in this way is to alleviate the the patterns. He can help alleviate the patterns that create disruptive behavior in the first place. But there's more. Turn with me now to Luke 12 since we're already in Luke. Look at verse 22. He says, "For this, He said to the disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, nor they have no store room or barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? Now look at verse 30. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. You receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you seek his kingdom. You are now under God's direct provisionary care. Talking it's amazing. You're under his care. So he will take care of you. He knows that the ravens need to be fed. He takes care of them. And how much more valuable than you a raven? And so Jesus actually had to teach the disciples this very lesson. He taught them this in Luke 9, in verse 3. I'll read this to you. It's amazing. He says this. Actually, I'll start in verse 1. He called it a twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all the demons to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and performing healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag, nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Why did he make them do that? The answer is in verse 35 of Luke chapter 22. He said to them later on, near the end of his ministry, and he said to them, when I sent you out with money, without a money belt and without a bag and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, no, nothing. <laughs> no, nothing. Luke twenty-two thirty-five. 35. This is really important, church. Really important. The poor have the gospel preached. You come under God's provisionary care and you won't lack the basic necessities of life. You go his way and you will start to see the fruit of that. This is why we don't see Jesus anywhere in the gospels campaigning for the poor. We don't have any illustration or Bible story of him actually like having a ministry, like feeding them and doing these things like soup kitchens. It does not exist. Not one story. So who do we give to? We can give to, we are to be generous to all people, but our priority, our priority is always our brothers and sisters in Christ. So how are we to give? Let's look at verse two of 1 Corinthians 16. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Couple observations here I wouldn't want you to miss. Notice he told them to put money aside on the first day of the week. The first day of the week. Now, there's different thoughts as to what this would mean and so why Paul would say this. Um, we know in the Bible that the first day of the week in the Christian community is Sunday. That was the day of the resurrection, and so Acts 20 verse 7 says that the church met on the first day of the week, where they would corporately come together to break bread. And so, by doing it on the first day of the week, Paul was really saying it's a convenient day, really, to remember your other brothers and sisters in need in other parts of the world because you're meeting like to sort of think about the Lord and his, his ways. So the first day of the week is a convenient day. It's a, it's a commemoration for the Christian people. Gordon his commentary said it could be that, but he was helpful. He said, perhaps it was just payday in the Gentile world, <laughs> right? You work, say, whatever, and Sundays are paydays. And we have that, right? Ours is every Friday, every two weeks, right? If you get paid, it's on a Friday, twice a month, or it's once a month at the end of the month. And so that's how things work, it's payday. So that's, but here's what's important about this. On that day, they were to put aside and save as they prospered, so that no collections would be made when Paul got there. Notice here, Paul doesn't focus on the amount of money to be put aside, but on the method, the method of how to do it. He says, you, you put money away as you prosper. NIV says, in keeping with your income. So Paul's not asking believers to go into poverty themselves to alleviate other people's poverty, nor is he asking believers to go into debt to alleviate other people's poverty. He's saying, basically, give in proportion to whatever profits you happen to make that week. If they are to put money aside every week, they've obviously been making profits. So just put a, give a portion of, oh, put a portion aside for whatever profits you happen to do in business that week or whatever you made in your, in your job. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 12, actually, in speaking to this contribution he wanted to do earlier, said this. This is what Paul said. Give according to what you have, not what you don't have. So as you worked, you create an income, or maybe you got like a little bit of money some other way. I'm not sure how, but you just receive some. And so you just give off of that profit you have. Other principles, though, uh, within the giving, since the amount isn't giving, it has to do with attitude. Attitude. Second Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. Again, Paul's speaking to this very offering in 1 Corinthians. So he's he's writing a second letter to deal with this offering. He makes this comment. Remember this: whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves it, you're a cheerful giver. So again, Paul focuses not on the amount now, but on the attitude whatever you've got from extra, from the profits you happen to make this week, but now your attitude to be is one of generosity, reminding them that if you're generous, you will reap more fruit out of that than being stingy, but also with your attitude. Decide in your heart what's best to give, not with a grudge, not under compulsion, like, oh, I have to do this, but more like you want to do this, and honor of your brothers and sisters who are in need, and out of your love for the Lord. And he says, God, when you do this, God loves a cheerful giver. So these decisions are probably made around the supper table. As people looked across the table from one another, husband and wife or brother and sister and said, hey, what do you think, based on how we did this week at work or the money we brought in, what do you think it looks like to um, put aside some money that we can show generosity to our fellow brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who are in need as we sit in time of plenty and, 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 and um, blessing? And what do you think? And they go back and forth and have this discussion around the table. And they're doing it with, not under compulsion, but out of a grateful heart. And they're looking to be generous. They're not looking just to pull the loony that they found off the floor behind the bed. And that's their contribution. No, it's something they made that week that was gonna cost them a little bit. That was an act of real sacrifice. But one of the key point here is that is how they did it was how they put it aside on the first day of weeks and saved. See what he wanted to, to do here was, was ingenious. He said every day or on the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside and save. So what he's, is genius because he when he comes there, he doesn't wanna make a giant plea and pull on their guilt and their emotional heartstrings like Genesis House, I just arrived in town. We've got some poor people uh, in Jerusalem can you guys, like, you know, just pull into your pockets and get an offering here? How much do you think we'd collect in a, in a quick uh, plea from the pulpit in terms of collecting funds in a one cold call sort of meeting? I don't know what it would be, but, you know, it wouldn't be probably a huge amount. Not a huge amount. What if I said to you, for six months, Genesis House, we're going to alleviate some poverty with brothers and sisters we know, uh, you know, say in Lethbridge. And for six months, every time you get paid, I'd like you to sit down and put a little bit of money aside and do it purposely, regularly, and incrementally. And then after six months, we're going to collect it and bring it to the church. How much do you think Genesis House would raise doing it that way? I mean, it's an absolute no-brainer. But what an ingenious way of trying to take care of the poor brothers and sisters, right? They were to be purposeful every day of the week. They were to do it incrementally as he prospers. Set aside a little bit of savings with a cheerful heart and to be generous and do it in that way. I think we can learn something here, church, about how to start thinking about how to take care of our brothers and sisters who are needy. Listen, We've already had people in our church uh, go through some hardships, like Rob uh, lost his, I remember when you quit the, your job there and you were trying to get going, like if, if things didn't get going for a while, you know, if we would take care of you. Evans lost his job, Stewart's lost his job, right? Brad lost his job. You know, what if we had been saving in this way for months, just always making a practice, and then we just said Genesis House of a brother or sister in our church is in need. And and I did a cold call compared to like saving month after month after month, making it a practice, how much we could take care of our own community if that happened. Something to learn from Paul. So let's finish with how the funds were distributed in verse three and four. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it's bidding for me to go also, they will go with me. I think what's really important here is um, the focus on integrity by Paul. This, his, his, worry, or no, his concern for integrity of the, of the gifts being delivered to Jerusalem. You see, notice he says, um, let me appoint the people that are going to go. He says to the Corinthians, you choose, you appoint whomever you think should go, and I will send them with letters. And if I can go with them, I will. Paul knows the people in Corinth, but he hasn't been there for a while. The people in the church know who would be trustworthy in handling money. Who would have integrity to carry this gift? Remember the map, Corinth to Jerusalem? Like you have to go by boat, for one, but you have a long distance Could you imagine the temptation to uh, pilfer from the old uh, community chest? Could you imagine uh, just thinking, "Well, you know, like I've got like you know ten thousand dollars here, like from Galatian Church and the Corinthian Church, and if I took five hundred bucks, no one would know. Ninety-five hundred—that's an amazing gift to the church." People of integrity were to be appointed people that the corinthians trusted to handle the money and it was sent through that method and i think it's important like one thing i just thought of um, in this and i'm not saying this is the reason paul did it but i think it's important that they did it this way too because it ensured the delivery of the money to where it was going to go like one of my frustrations i think is like we we deal with charitable organizations and stuff right And so we send to these organizations and we just hope that the money actually gets to where it wants to be, but we don't actually ever probably know. And they can send us bogus reports for all they know. Yeah, they might be doing tax fraud, but people will do anything, right? But if I were to, say, send three or four people from our church down to Lethbridge, take an hour and a half trip, and we actually physically showed up face to face and said, here's the thing. And then you came back and I said to you guys, how did it go? And you said, oh, man, it was amazing. We got it right to the horse's mouth, so to speak. Like it cuts all the loopholes and it's just a great way of um, ensuring the right people get the relief that they deserve. But let me close with this. I've already talked about this in the opening and why I had to bring it up in the opening. Remember the whole thing about unity? About Paul and unity, the Gentiles loving the Jewish people, creating unity between two ethnic groups that have tension. Could you imagine... Could you imagine what that would have been like for Gentile Corinthians to show up in Jerusalem who have never met? And they introduced themselves to the Jewish people in poverty and said, this is a love offering for us. By sending the elders, it forced a face-to-face encounter with the people who gave the love offerings. A face-to-face encounter, a representative. Gordon Fee said it this way. The, the personal representation would have been just as important as the gifts themselves. Yeah, of course, because man, it's love in action. It's the Gentiles showing up on a Jewish doorstep and saying, we love you as equals in Christ. I know we're totally from different backgrounds in food, clothing, religious beliefs, but under Jesus, we stand as one. And we're here in love for you. So what do we learn from this? Number one, as believers, the biblical mandate for taking care of those in need is to prioritize our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's the priority system in the Bible. At the same time, I could make this another separate lesson. I'm not going to, uh, but I could have. We're not to support all brothers, right? If 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 they're lazy sods then no, we don't support them because it's their own fault that they got in that position. But if we, have, we have working people who are just down on their luck or people who are going through like sickness or loss of job or whatever or, or get a high river flood, whatever it is, Port McMurray fire, we are to prioritize our brothers and sisters in Christ. who are Does that mean we're not to take care of other people who aren't Christians? No. Galatians 6, be generous to all. But, but again, especially to those who are brothers and sisters. We have to prioritize our funds. Number two, more than financial relief, impoverished people need the gospel preached to them. Those aren't my words. Those are Jesus's. Luke 7:22. the blind see, the lame walk, the poor have the gospel preached. They're not my words. They're Christ's. Take it up with him. Again, why? Because a lot of famine, or not a lot of famine, a lot of poverty is due to just poor choices, and we have to remember that. I'll tell you a personal story of this, you know, just in 30 seconds, but I almost lost the gym years ago. Do you know why? Stupid, sinful decisions. Period. Next lesson. In order to maximize one's ability to be generous, the biblical approach is to save regularly and incrementally as one prospers. If you want to maximize your ability to to, to be able to respond to those in need, be purposeful and habitually like regular in your, your giving, in your savings. Maybe put a little envelope in your room Marked, you, know, you know, giving to the needy or supporting our, our brothers and sisters or whatever, generosity. And put a little bit aside in that envelope. Every time payday comes or you make a sale into Gigi or whatever, you know, whatever it takes, get an inheritance, whatever it takes. And then when the need arises, we're not doing cold calls and giving people peanuts because we haven't been proactive in our thinking. <laughs> All right, that's the biblical approach. That's Paul's approach. That's Acts 11's approach to dealing with the famine. When Agabus stood up, why did he stand up and announce it in advance? To give the churches time to prepare, to alleviate for how big the famine was gonna come. That's why the prophet spoke on behalf of God to give the to give warning. Lesson number four. In determining the amount, one should seek to be generous and give with a cheerful heart, but not under compulsion. So, no prescribed amount here. But he says, seek to be generous. Remember the principle, you reap. If you reap lots, you'll sow. Or if you sow lots, you reap lots. If you reap little, you'll, you'll sow little, or vice versa. I'm not a farmer, I can't get my analogy straight. But uh, anyway, but uh, you get the idea. So, we seek to be generous, and we do it out of love for God, or the cheerful heart. And finally... I kind of wrestled through this lesson. I'd like more time to think it through, but it's still worth mentioning, I think. Sort of in times of wide-scale need within the church family, so I'm not talking about an individual issue where one person's like down their left. I'm talking about like, so like a famine or a high river flood type situation. And in times of wide-scale need, one should consider entrusting appointed leadership uh, to disperse the funds accordingly to those who are in need, right? Because that's what Paul did. He says, I want to get all the elders together and I want to um, basically entrust you with the finances to deliver them to the saints. And I think that could be a good principle. That's happened to me a couple of times in Genesis House. a couple of people have given me some like, love offerings and said, "Angie, you, you distribute them in Genesis House as you see fit, you know? And so, or as you and the leadership see fit, I should say, right? So it hasn't just sort of been, because they don't always know what's going on and who's really in need of money. That's kind of a cool principle. Anyway, much to be said, Um, curious to hear your thoughts.